Hello, welcome back for another episode of No Man Knows My Podcast. This is Moses. And this is Hosea. And we just want to give you a quick programming update. We have um, done this before where we have spoken a little bit too much. It seems like this <laughs> next episode is no different. So uh, <laughs> we ended up having to split this into two separate episodes. Just bear with us. Totally worth the, all the extra information. But uh, yeah, this one just ran a little bit longer. And uh, a lot of the stuff that we went into detail on, I think you're going to find really interesting, which is why we're going to kind of cut it down into smaller chunks, being about an hour piece so that it's easier for you guys to listen to. So this will be up this week. And then in two weeks, we'll be back with episode five. But with that, on to the show. Thank you. Thanks. everyone and welcome to episode four of no man knows my podcast the mormon history podcast i'm your host hosea and as always i'm joined by my co-host moses greetings good sir how are you oh i am happier than clam and sand oh that's how are you doing <laughs> i don't know if i've heard that one before <laughs> yeah. I'm oh, i doing... just made it up oh okay well that's fair <laughs> this is a good place to do that I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm doing pretty good considering. I think things are things are, are pretty decent. Uh, you know, as we said uh, in the in the last episode, uh, once again we're, we're recording obviously during the during the COVID pandemic, and uh, once again we hope everybody's being safe and uh, doing everything they can to socially distance themselves as much as possible and, and keep everybody else safe. Uh, obviously, we we had a little bit of a break there. And we're glad to be back and we're glad to be working on this again because it's something we really love doing. COVID-19 sucks. I've officially con uh, confirmed that. So, yeah, I'm <laughs> glad we that's what <laughs> sent you into the field to do that kind of analysis. And you came back and you said, yes, this does suck. We have yes. confirmed this. Yes, I've done, I've done a deep, deep analysis on that and I've determined that it sucks. OK, well, I'm glad we, we've got that. We could. Move on knowing that it's pretty bad. Um, so this is going to be part three, our final part, I promise you, of our Saints chapter one discussion. Guys, honestly, this is there's a lot going on in in this first chapter. And and to be quite honest, there's a lot going on before this first chapter, and that's why we've spent some time on it. We hope that everybody's enjoyed some of the deep dives that we've gone on. I think we've learned a lot. I think we've talked a lot about some of the uh some of the lead up to to Joseph Smith, even uh Joseph Smith Jr. And and so uh, we're we're glad to be in this in this part where we're starting to catch a little bit of esteem in the, in the book now. So in our in our last episode in episode three, we covered the Smith family dynamics. We talked a little bit about the Smith sisters. That was a fun topic, and we also talked about some of the early troubles of the Smith family, uh, some money troubles that they had, a little bit of um, tension there. The last thing that we talked about in, in last uh, episode in episode three. What, and probably the most important part of that episode was the surgery that Joseph Smith Jr. had on his leg, uh, the operation that he had to remove uh, parts of his tibia. Some of the trauma that that actually held with it and, and continued on in his life um, for possibly the rest of his life. So we left off with some of that. Some of the topics for this episode, Moses, will you hit us off with that? Absolutely. 
Um, just before that, though, um, sure. I think it's important that we, you know, we we did do, did a deep dive into all of the things from episodes one and two, and I think it's really important to do that deep dive to go go through that that foundation and that history, just so that we could lay a foundation for Joseph Smith Jr. and um, and really understand where he's coming from, and it gives us a better picture into why he did things that the way that he did. Yeah, I think it sets up everything that's going to happen after. Uh, everything starting even with this episode, because we start to see Joseph Smith Jr. as he's getting a little bit older and starting to actually participate more in, in the family's events, the things that happen with the family at least. And the thing that I always think of, you know what I mean? It's it's kind of an interesting thing. I might have talked to you about this a little bit last time, is the the Joseph Smith, The Prophet of the Restoration, you remember that film? Uh, that's constantly some weird benchmark in my head. I think I just saw it so many times that it's just, it's just ingrained. Um, and so everything that I think of kind of leads up to that. Uh, and, and now we're getting to that, uh, you know, I, I went and watched it again recently and in the beginning just gives a whole bunch. It's just like, goes straight into some of the, um, you know, the, uh, the, it's like the cliff notes, but maybe even less of, of his early life. Uh, and it really skips right up to the first vision essentially. Um, and I get it. That's kind of the main, that's kind of the main event really. But, uh, you know, there's so much, like you said, Moses, there's so much that informs everything leading up to that point. So once again, totally agree with you. It's completely necessary. It's required even to cover some of these topics because it's where we, it's where we, get the background information the, the this solid foundation you know like the house built upon rock not sand to build off of going forward and I, I think that i think that we've been able to kind of help do that a little bit so so yeah topics uh topics for this episode uh we're going to be talking about the smith family exodus from sharon vermont uh, we're going to examine more of, of the life in Palmyra during Joseph's time. There was the Second Great Awakening, which we'll uh, dive deeper into that, uh, as well as the Burnt to Over District. We'll talk about what that means, uh, kind of go over what events were precipitating that and, and how, how it got its name, Burnt Over District. We'll also talk about the, the events that led up to the culmination of Joseph Smith Jr.'s Theophany. So really quick, Theophany... We're going to use that phrase a little bit. Um, the, the I think that the most commonly used phrase, I actually used it just a few minutes ago, uh, is Joseph Smith's first vision. However, vision is kind of um, an interesting phrase to use. There's a little bit of back and forth um, in some of the historical literature about what exactly that meant. If you take it at face value, vision is um, something that happens that's not tangible, it's not real. Uh, necessary. I'm sorry. Real is probably not the right word to use, but it's not um, tan tangible. Is probably the better word to use there. Um, and whereas theophany can mean a whole lot of different things, uh, and, and can include both of those possibilities: something that is a, a physical event, or something that is more of a vision or a dream. Uh, so that's why we're going to probably use the term theophany a little bit more. It also just makes us sound smarter, and I think that's really the main reason why we're going to use it. Um, so, <laughs> but, but exactly. I, I think it is a better descriptor. So that's, that's why we're going to go ahead and, and, uh, and use that term. Okay. And sources that we're going to use in this episode, we're going back to the basics. Obviously we're using the saints book. Um, I'm probably going to stop saying that from now on. So everybody should just know that we're using the saints book. That's the whole point of the podcast. 
But in addition, <laughs> in addition to the Saints I hope book, they I hope they gathered that. <laughs> yeah, at this point, I, it's kind of self-evident. We're also going to use uh, Bushman again, Richard Bushman's Rough Stone Rolling. Uh, we're going to be using D. Michael Quinn's Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. We're going to use Vogel's, um, sorry, Dan Vogel, um, The Making of a Prophet. Uh, once again, by the way, some of these some of these books you have to buy <clears throat> online. Dan Vogel's The Making of a Prophet is free on the internet. If you try to buy the book, it's more like $400, but because it's been out of print for a while and people seem to like it. Uh, but it is free on Signature Books' website, which we link to uh, in the show notes. So please check that out because it's a wonderful resource. Um, sorry to plug Dan Vogel so much, but it is, it's free. So it's kind of nice. Saints is also free, by the way. <laughs> it's on the LDS website. Yeah, if you're paying for that, then... Uh, well, I got to tell you, so the, I think the, I have the physical version too, um, and, or the paperback or whatever, and I think it was like three bucks or something like that. You know, church distribution. So it's covered, I think it covers cost, and that's pretty much it. So that's, it's pretty equitable, I have to say. It's nice that they made this resource uh, available. Uh, Bushman's going to be, you know, you have to buy that one uh, or, or get it from your library. Oh, uh, I mean, you'd have to get it digitally from your library at this point. So... But anyway, um, and then, you know, Quinn is going to be another one that's, you got to get the book, um, either Kindle or, or physically. Uh, but, but Brody is another one that we're going to use. So Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History, uh, the eponymous book here. Um, we, you can actually find a version of that on archive.org, which is pretty cool because it was, it was printed in the forties. So, um, so just looking that one up too, cause that's a great reference. Now, from our last episode and continuing into this episode, and probably for the rest of the, at least for a while, we're going to continue to use Dr. Moraine's The Sword of Laban. Uh, that has proved to be a really remarkable insight into one surgeon's idea of what it was like to, to be Joseph Smith Jr., to, to be inside of his mind, essentially, and, and, and in the context of a, a major trauma at the age of seven. So, I, I personally have, have really enjoyed that, uh, taking it within the context that it should be taken in, which is one person's viewpoint, uh, but it is very good. Um, we also have a couple additional resources. I'm going to throw those in as we use them a little bit later um, in the episode today, because they're just, they're just little bits and pieces, but it's important to know where we're pulling some of this stuff from. So that's, uh, that's pretty much it. Just to, to make a note, and I think we said this in the first episode, obviously Saints is our, book, our, our benchmark, um, and then Rough Stone Rolling. Early Mormonism, Magic Worldview, The Making of a Prophet, No Man Is My History. Those are going to be the main books that we draw from uh, to to sort of do a an amalgam amalgamation of of our uh, way to compare and contrast um, what the church has written with what other historians have written as well. Um, it's going to be the way that we kind of put everything together. So just keep that in mind going forward. We're probably gonna, I, I think kind of like the idea of keeping this in the beginning of the episode to go over some of these sources that we're using. Um, but if please let us know with your feedback, whether that's something that you like or not. As always, you can visit us at no man knows.com. Uh, visit us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash no man knows, or shout out to us on Twitter at no man knows pod. You can go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever flavor of podcatcher you want and give us a rating, subscribe, and if you can please, leave us a review. And, and just to reiterate something that we said in the last episode, we are looking for listener questions for our, our new-ish, in quotations, segment, <laughs> listener Q&A. 
please send us any questions that you have about Mormon history at uh, to to no man knows my podcast at gmail.com. You can also just tweet us. It's like Moses said at no man knows pod. Or another option, uh, because we we like the Reddit community and we we try to be pretty active in the Reddit community. You can just DM us on Reddit uh, with the username u slash no man knows my podcast. Really, we just we want to hear questions. We want to have some participation and be able to have a little bit of back and forth with uh, listeners. And we know that there's a ton of questions out there. Honestly, I'm just going to be honest with you. I love doing the research. I like to hear a question that I haven't heard before, and I want to hear something that gives me an excuse to go and do hours of research. So hit with whatever questions you have. Hit Moses with whatever questions you have. We love this stuff. So um, if you can, you know, try to keep it to the chronology of what we're doing, something early in the early uh, Mormon history. But, uh, you know, we'll accept anything that you want to throw our way, at least for now, uh, while we have the capacity to answer your questions. But we're really looking forward to that. So go ahead and send us your questions. We want to we wanna hear from you. Or even ask us questions about us personally. Well, well, I mean, like, maybe not our address. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not, like. <laughs> you know, try to keep a little Let's, bit, keep our anonymity a little bit. What, there, are, you, but, what are you wearing? Yeah. But, oh, I'll um, tell you that right now. It's uh, <laughs> it's, it's a little scandalous. Khakis? Yeah. 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 That, was, that was dumb. Anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah. No, I mean, yeah. Ask us questions about ourselves. Um, also on our website, you're going to see a little bit of information about us in our, in our uh, about us page uh, under our, our individual bios. Obviously, we're still kind of trying to keep things on um, on the DL, so to speak. Because we have those family relationships and, and friends that uh, that are still connected with the church that we may not want to necessarily damage any of that kind of relationship. But in, other, in, in any case, we can be pretty um, broad with our, our, our descriptions if you want to ask us about ourselves. We're, we're happy to answer any questions. So let's dive right into the content for today, which we're going to be starting with the move from Vermont to New York. Um, so this is happening. This is occurring after Joseph Jr. has his leg operation, obviously. Um, something that's not mentioned necessarily in Saints, or at least I didn't see it. Moses, you can correct me if I'm wrong or any of our listeners can. Um, if you want to shout out to us and, and tell us that you're wrong, um, that's fine. I'm totally fine with that. We're okay with uh, being wrong. We can't. What's that? We're okay with being wrong once in a while. We're totally fine with being wrong. 100% fine with being wrong. We, we prefer to be wrong and corrected so that we can, we can make sure that we're right going forward. But uh, something that I didn't see in, in the Saints book was the fact Joseph Jr. decided to, not decided, he was seven, so probably didn't decide anything at that point. Um, he was sent to his Uncle Jesse's house out in Salem, Massachusetts. And I think I might have mentioned that just briefly in the end of the last episode, um, but something to kind of take a little bit of interest in. Um, has some of that family history in Salem, which we talked about, but uh, he spent a little bit of time there recovering uh, in, in kind of basking in the, the ocean breeze which was something that uh, was, uh, was deemed to be pretty helpful in the, in the medical community at that point. So it was uh, probably an interesting experience for him at that time. You know, as soon as he was able to walk, being able to go out there to Salem and see uh, a, a town that was um, way more developed than, than the towns that he was used to. 
So after all of that, uh, you know, I really kind of want to go back a little bit. I've, we probably have hit this a couple of times. So please bear with us because there's th an interesting point that, uh, that I think we need to address. And this is the right time to address it because what we've been covering, as we said before, are, are the events leading up to basically the first page of, of the Saints book, which goes into great detail about how this explosion happens, this, this eruption, I should say with Mount Tambora. Um, and it's used as a very gripping entry, uh, to the, to the book, uh, intro rather. Uh, and we, and we did mention it before. Now we've been out of sync with saints a little bit, obviously, but we're back to this just to say that the interesting thing about Tambora incident was at this time, we're talking about 1800 froze to death, 18, 1816. The book actually mentions that, because of Mount Tambora and and the and the devastation that that caused, and, and, and economic devastation too. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, the entire country was um, w was affected by the fact that you know it was it was incredibly cold. A lot of crops died. People didn't have enough money from the, their cash crops to really survive, uh, or or at least to even make any money. And um, and the book uses that kind of as an excuse to say, well, because of this event. The Smith family really couldn't stay on their farm, and so they left. The thing that I, will, I we really wanted to mention here was the fact that it avoids mentioning a thing that happened um, kind of before that, which is that the family was warned out of Sharon. Now, I'm going to go into a little bit of detail about what a warning out is. I think part of the, the issue with the Saints book is that it, it oversimplifies – the reasons that they moved from Sharon, Vermont to New York, they, it doesn't really go yeah. into, I mean, cause it, it, think about you and think about your personal life. What decisions go into moving from one state to another? Just think about that. <laughs> it's never just one reason or even two reasons. There are no. a handful of reasons or many reasons that play into that decision. And so it, it really, it really doesn't really go into uh, the, the huge decision to, pick up their, their roots and move to a state over. No, you're hundred percent right. And I actually speak with a little bit of experience here um, because I was involved with a, an out of state move of similar proportions um, for a very similar event that happened. And I can tell you right now that, yeah, there, there are a hundred different reasons to come to play. And a lot of them kind of all lead in to the, to the culmination of this event that happens. And so it's, it's really tough to say that a successful farmer having one bad year, um, would have, would have been forced out of their, of their farm, of their livelihood. Um, certainly there was a ton of farmers that were, that were slowly sort, not really slowly, I guess, but moving West continually and, because of that, we're never able really to get a get a foothold in some of these areas and some of their farms. And so, yeah, I mean, it's totally understandable that somebody that hadn't really had any success um, in, in okay, let's just say somebody moved there for a year, and then eighteen hundred froze death comes around and freezes all your your first year of crops. Well, that's terrible. Like that sucks. That's not gonna that's not gonna go anywhere. And you could totally understand how somebody would be um, forced to leave because of that. What the book fails to mention, however, is that the two years prior to 1816, Smith Sr. had actually failed to produce crops from the farm and 
According to Lucy, the family was able to survive off of a harvest from an orchard there, but they had no, they had no money coming in. So we, we have two successive years prior to 1816 where there was just nothing going on there. And some of the, this is a very interesting situation because part of the process of moving west and getting land and, and developing that land, um, was built into some of the local law. And they wanted to incentivize people to move west in the first place. Um, but they didn't want people to just kind of just random people to show up and, and not do anything with it and just sit there kind of squatters essentially. Right. They didn't want that. And so some of the things that they had, um, built in to somebody coming west and, and, and buying land required them to make improvements on the land and to continually kind of make progress. And if you didn't, there were consequences. So, one, so really quick, we'll jump into something that Dan Vogel says in, in his book, um, in his book, The Making of a Prophet. He says, uh, quote, on 15 March 1816, perhaps anticipating a difficult harvest, town officials issued the Smiths a warning out, quote unquote, releasing the community from the responsibility of supporting the poor. Now, that's, I think, pretty much all that uh, that. Dan Vogel writes on this particular situation. So I wanted to bring in a couple of extra resources to kind of learn a little bit about a warning out, because I got to tell you, when I first read this, I had no idea what a warning out was. I never heard of the term before. And, and that was several years ago. And I kind of learned the basic gist of it, but this gave me an opportunity to really look more into detail. And I actually even dove into a little bit of, um, Vermont law from 18, basically 1816. I think it was 18, 12 or something like that. Then I looked at some of the laws that were passed and, and read some of that language. And you really get an idea, a better idea of what is going on when a town warns somebody out. Uh, the main thing really is, is that, as I mentioned before, if you're not making improvements on the land uh, on what they called a freehold uh, at the time, y- you, if you fail to make payments, then they had the right to, to warn you out, essentially to ask you kindly to leave, which is basically a warning, right? That's where they get the name warning out. If you didn't leave, I mean, they could forcibly remove you afterward, but usually it didn't lead to that. I mean, somebody who was asked to leave nicely, I mean, if, it, if the town came to you and said, hey, Moses, we'd really pr- appreciate if you just weren't here anymore. Um, <laughs> you probably would, you probably would just be like, yeah, okay, well, if I don't want to be here either. So thanks. Bye. And then just leave unless you had a reasonable way to, you know, um, to redress that. But, uh, in, in this case, having two years of failure and, and the third was just, they knew it was going to happen. Uh, they, they issued a warning out in March, uh, which is before the, the, the crisis really hit. And so we look at a, a, a resource, something I mentioned earlier, um, just a, a very small, snippet of a resource that we're going to use here by um, Josiah Henry Benton, and it's called Warning Out in New England. It was written in 1911. This is another um, book that you can look up at archive.org and and read this book. Not that you're going to run, you're probably not going to read the entire book um, because there's just a lot of, there's a lot of information you probably don't need in there. But there's a great part about specifically in Vermont. He states that in Vermont at that time, there were specific warning out laws regarding immigrants to the state occupying, quote, freehold estates, like I was just mentioning. If they did not make improvements or rent or, and make payments, they would be issued a warning out. So that's just um, a little source there so that we can back up kind of what I'm saying there. Interestingly enough, and this is probably the best part of what I have to offer you guys today, is that um, 
in in the Journal of Mormon History, which is a fantastic journal. I I love um, of the Mormon history journals that are out there. It's probably one of my favorites. Uh, between, you know, BYU studies, which is um, hit or miss, and the John Whitmer Historical Association Journal. Um, journal of Mormon History is is fantastic. There's there a lot of great stuff in there. Um, oh, and I, I think I, I left that dialogue, um, which for historical stuff is is um, not as good as it used to be, I think. That's just my own opinion. Um, I, think they, I think they turn out really good stuff. I'm not saying that. Uh, I just think that uh, for sources of historical information, or uh, you know, the the uh, current literature, the, the JM, uh, JMH is probably my favorite out of all those. And then obviously Sunstone has theirs as well. So in July of 2019, it's volume 45. It's it's uh, issue number three. If you want to follow along with me, if you have the ability to and, and, and can follow along. Um, it's an article written by a gentleman by the name of Alexander L. Ba, and he is the professor and chair of the Department of Church History and Doctrine at BYU. And he wrote an article, it's actually the first article in this issue, and it's titled, uh, quote, We have a company of Danites in these times, close quote. And then the, the subtitle is The Danites, Joseph Smith, and the 1838 Missouri Mormon Conflict. It's a mouthful, that uh, particular article name. But, you know, maybe we could have a segment where it's, uh, is this a the title of an academic paper or a Panic at the Disco song? Oh, my God, that's good. <laughs> that's so good. Okay, we'll put a poll out. You guys need to tell us if that's what you want. <laughs> All right. Um, Professor Boss states that in the 1830s, He says, quote, uh, a warning out or warning out of the town was the way the individuals who were considered to be objectionable were expelled from a community. He goes on to say later in the article, if the committee men considered the individual objectionable, the community leaders gave a a constable a warning, uh, sorry, a warrant containing the conditions and provisions of the order to deliver to the person in question. If the person was warned out, they were usually given a specific length of time to comply, for example, six months. In the meantime, if the individual situation changed or improved, permission could be given for them to remain. So it seems pretty equitable, and I can understand the reasons that they did it. It's kind of weird in today's context, but at the time, you had a lot of people moving west. and You you know, the whole point of them doing these programs was to make sure that as people moved west and they bought this land, that they were really doing a good job building that community. And so that's kind of what the whole purpose of this was. You know, if you put it into today's terms, it's it's kind of like, uh, okay, let's let's put it in, into two different terms. You have you have uh, pre foreclosure on a mortgage. Oh right, yeah. If you're not sure. paying your mortgage, you're going to be warned out of your home, right? That's a good point. Or homeowners insurance or homeowners uh, association. If the HOA says that your property is is not in in line with the association then you could actually be evicted from your own home if you're not keeping up the property, you're not complying with the with the association. Right, you're in violation of the bylaws, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's if you think about it in those terms, it's really not that much different from what, uh, what we experience nowadays. Right. No, that's a good point. So, and, and maybe that's actually where that kind of hails from. Uh, you know, we, we, we see all the time things that are, are commonplace today. Um, that have their roots deep, deep in history. And, and this could just be one more thing that led to some of the, the um, examples that you shared. So I, I think that honestly, it's interesting. The Okay, so the interesting part to me is that 
Professor Baugh uses this explanation to give context to the Danites. Um, hence the title. Like, that's that's in the title. I don't blame you right now if you don't have a clue who the Danites are um, because it's complicated, first of all. But also, it's one of those it's one of those subjects that keeps getting new information released all the time. The the most recent um, the most recent Joseph Smith Papers book, if I recall correctly, so correct me if I'm wrong about this, but um, was actually a a huge portion of it was the meeting minutes of the Council of Fifty, which involved some of the information uh, about the Danites. I mean, if you are if you are going into the meeting minutes of the the Council of Fifty, uh-huh. you're going to run into the Danites. Yeah, you're going to run into information on them because that's. I mean, there were a, a large number of Danites that were that belonged to the Council of Fifty. Yeah, that's where that was formed, basically. A lot of the downfall of, of these early leaders is the fact that they just kept too good of records, honestly. If they were just poor, if they were more... <laughs> so true. If they were more poor, that's not the way to say that. If they were poorer, nope. If they were bad, <laughs> that's better. <laughs> if they were bad at keeping records, maybe they wouldn't look like idiots half the time. And I'm saying that about, sorry, not just about Mormon leaders. I'm talking about a- everybody. Anybody. You know, the whole the whole letter book thing. You know, which I think we covered earlier, um, perhaps not, but the, the the idea that you would have a letter book where one side is the letter that you write to somebody and the other side, you literally just hand copy it over to the other side for your, for your keeping. Um, that has, that has been the way that we get letters about people. Some people kept those letters, but also most people kept the letter book, which, which you have their own copy of their letter that they sent. And I can't imagine, I mean, we have emails. I, I think about this a lot. I don't know about you guys. I think about dumb things all the time. I think about this, this idea that maybe someday emails and like certainly social media posts will be a form of that. Like somebody will go back um, to somebody important. I don't know. Not me, obviously, but somebody important and look back and say, look at these emails that he wrote. <laughs> it's just like, oh, she wrote these emails just, that were just terrible. Like, what a terrible person. Oh, it's already happening. Oh, you is, know what happened with really? Kevin Hart? Oh, yeah. The Kevin tweets? Hart, yeah. like his tweets, and you're like, okay, well, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I saw that. What Netflix he's saying show. really isn't that bad, but <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, come from a different generation, I guess. No, I mean, I, I, I get, I get. Well, I know, I totally get why people are upset, but I also understand that that that's such a difficult concept. Actually, this is a great concept to illustrate um, presentism, right? Where mm-hmm. we, and this is a huge concept in historical um, research is that we often try to put things in the prism of, of how we view our, our current lives, the, the, the way that our, our current viewpoints are, right? I can tell you right now that, I mean, uh, obviously for many reasons, right? My viewpoint today is so significantly different than it was 10 years ago. I mean, just like oh, yeah. off the charts different. And I think better. I think I've, I think I've improved. It's been, it's refined. Right. And I'll look back 10 years from now and I sure as hell hope that I look back 10 years from now and I think the same thing, like it's improved so much, but I guarantee you if I read that in, in 2010 or whenever he wrote it, I can't remember when it was, but I probably wouldn't have thought anything about it. And I think most people wouldn't have, which is probably why he didn't get in trouble back then, <laughs> yeah. but, but it's being litigated now. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the issue at hand. So I don't necessarily want to necess- I, don't, I don't really want to say anything about that because I can totally understand where people um, would be would be really upset about that, especially with regard to um, violence that's that's been done to homosexual or anybody in the in LGBTQ. Oh, yeah. It's it's horrible. Um, 
But it is, I mean, it's a tweet and it's a joke. And I have a special thing in particular about comedians and, and their ability to use comedy to, I don't know, to, to, to really kind of bring people together for the most part. I get that that's not bringing some people together. So I, it's hard for me to say that necessarily, but I don't think that, I don't think you should necessarily, uh, censor people in general. Um, but comedians, especially because a lot of things that they say, um, are, are really just to, to joke. Um, an example of that is Dave Chappelle, somebody I, I, I respect very much. And I think is, um, I consider kind of a thought leader in, in some ways. Um, and, and, and he's very protective of the ability, especially for comedians to be able to say what they want to say in the context of being a comedian. And I, so I think that, um, there's two things, right? So I think that that should be considered at the very least. And I'm, I'm totally willing to hear arguments, um, of people who disagree with that 100%. Um, because everybody's always affected in a different way. Yeah. But then I also think we apply it to history and we say, we have a way of looking at things now that is so foreign, so alien. And that uses probably that term is probably overused to, to what people would have seen in 1820 or 1816 or whatever, or even 1970, um, that we have to be really careful about the way that we treat historical characters based on what we know now. There are certain things I'll say that exempt people from that. One main problem being that if you claim to be a prophet with special knowledge, that probably doesn't apply to you necessarily. Um, but you know, normal people are going to make the mistakes of their, of their time because they're a product of their time. Yeah. And so I, I, I think we, uh, I said this in the first episode, I think there's a really good case for people to be kind to people of history who said the just horrible things. Um, and, and that, uh, obviously has its limits, but I mean, there's some things that just, they just didn't know. And we know better now. And, and that's, that's good. We know better now. And hopefully we, as a, as a species continue to get better. That's the hope, right? Yeah. Kind of goes back to, to what we were talking about. We're okay with, with making mistakes. And I think that, that that's probably the biggest thing I've learned throughout my life is, is don't be afraid of making mistakes, but rather, um, be afraid of not learning from your mistakes and repeating those mistakes. We're all going to be making mistakes throughout our lives. And that includes, you know, doing some really stupid stuff. If we're not learning from those mistakes and actually improving ourselves, then it's a waste. The mistakes are a waste. And I think it's, it's only appropriate to be patient with ourselves and be patient with others as we continue to make mistakes. You know, so I just wanted to kind of highlight <clears throat> really quickly some of the information that's missing from from saints uh, that is is totally relevant to the the situation here that's that's going on with the Smith family. Um, they probably wouldn't have stayed anyway, uh, but but the fact of the matter is that, uh, that things weren't going well in the first place, and they were they were essentially forced to leave. Um, so they they decide to uh, comply with this uh, idea of getting out of town. Because probably the prospects of, of making things better in the time frame that they had uh, w- was slim to none, and so they decide to move west uh, because they probably already had that in mind in the first place. Senior actually had a couple of different dreams. There's a series of dreams that Joseph Smith Senior had leading up to some of these events. 
I didn't want to necessarily go into too much detail with these dreams because I think we're going to cover them a little bit later um, with how they tie into um, some of the contents of the Book of Mormon. But at, at the end of the day, he's he's having some of these dreams that are essentially one of them in particular that led up to this event. Um, in, in specific, it was kind of to him uh, a calling to move west further. Like uh, you haven't quite reached the the end of the line here, and, and so I know that uh, I know that Vogel in particular has in his book uh, a, a line that says basically he had it in his mind probably already based on his dream that he was going to move west. So it wasn't too much of a stretch for him to start doing that. On the other hand, uh, Brody says in her book and No Man Knows My History, she says that the prospect of moving to the west was really serious, um, and this is something that I I just don't. Uh, I don't know if I have a frame of reference for because to me it's all out east and I haven't really spent much time out there. But these are huge distances. Uh, I, I don't think that we're quite conceptualized. I'm saying I'm speaking for myself, I guess. But I think that my experience represents a lot of people. I don't. I never knew how much how much distance was between some of these places. Like it's huge. It's a it's a huge amount of distance between um, moving from Sharon, Vermont to, uh, to New York. Um, and, and so this is something that, uh, like I said, Brody says was extremely serious. It was, it was quite a distance so much so that it was looked at in some, as, uh, similar in a sense to crossing the ocean and coming to a new world. So we're talking about a huge, huge move here. And she says that a few people who left Vermont for the West ever came back. So that's something interesting to consider. You know, it's, it's not, it's not just like we're going to pick up our, our stuff and we're going to move to Nevada if you're living in Salt Lake. Um, it's, it's like, I don't know if we even have a comparison. It's like I'm moving to Antarctica. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like way out there. Um, well, and just keep in mind also that you didn't have the transportation during that time. Uh, when you have, uh, I mean, initially you didn't even have the railroad system at this time. No, um, no, no, no. You, when you look at the westward expansion, Not, let alone roads, oh, for, yeah. to some extent, yeah, yeah. You look at the westward expansion, and a lot of that was driven because of well, first you have you have the uh, the um, gold rush that uh, took individuals out to California. These nomads that didn't really have a home anyway, so they go out to California to, to, during their gold rush. But then, but then you have the railroads that really helped out with that westward expansion. But you look at, at the map of the United States, any of the East coast uh, states or the Eastern states are so small and so close together, right? So you didn't really have to travel as far to go from one state to another, but still without that, that transportation in place, it takes a, a large amount of time, large amount of effort. And it's, it's really just one way ticket. It's not, Oh, let's go try it out in New York. And then if it doesn't work out that we can move back to Vermont, there's really nothing that, that, uh, that would allow them to try out a different state and, and not just remain there. Cause it was so much effort, so much riding on that whole process. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even taking a wagon somewhere. I mean, like I said, uh, they had roads. I'm not trying to say they didn't have roads. I'm saying that those roads were not developed. Like th these were not well-developed 
they're not interstate highways by any stretch of the imagination, right? Th- these are these are difficult roads that took a lot of time to, to travel. You have horses that have the you know different kinds of, of needs along the way that you don't have with you know all the other modes of trans- transportation that we have these days. The Erie Canal, which we're going to get to in a little bit, was not developed. So this whole move was was completely um, it was just completely new for them. Um, even though they had moved quite a bit, this was this was the biggest jump that they've had so far, if I'm not mistaken. So. Uh, so actually, I'm gonna I want I want to reference a quick uh, additional reference, so to speak, uh, that I wanted to bring in as well. It's a book called Mapping Mormonism: An Atlas of Latter Day Saint History, and it is um, it comes from the BYU uh, the BYU Press actually, um, with a foreword from Richard Bushman. Really, really good book. Uh, I got to give this book a shout out because they actually do a really good job of everything in here. But it's super, super helpful in laying out a lot of the uh, geography of many different events. They have actually quite a bit of information about the Smith family progenitors uh, and and where they came from, like coming from England and settling and and moving around a little bit there. But uh, just to just to give a frame of reference for the amount of distance that was covered and and the route that they took, um, we we know. We don't really know the exact um, location of, of where uh, – sorry, the exact route that they took when they when they were on their way to Palmyra. Um, we do know that they stopped in South Royalton uh, because they had to leave – it's actually an interesting part of the story. Uh, they, had, they had to leave uh, Lucy Mack Smith's mother uh, because she was injured when, when the cart turned over on their, on their trip, which is really sad. But um, that gives us a basic idea of, of the route that they took. And it amounts to pretty close to uh, about 300, 300 miles, essentially. So we're talking about a pretty significant trip, especially by wagon. Um, something to put it in, into context a little bit there. Well, and if, if you look at about the, the average uh, miles traveled in a single day, when you're traveling with a wagon, it's only about 20 miles a day. So that amounts to about 15 days. Uh, you Holy think cow. About that, two solid weeks of travel. That's so horrible. Travel three hundred miles. Yeah, I mean, so not an easy task. Even in a car, like I, anything more than eight hours <laughs> sucks. <laughs> I can't imagine, man. I can't yeah, imagine. For real. Well, and and we learn uh, from saints here. This is actually a pretty good um, segue into our our next section. But um, we we learn from the story that's really left by um, Lucy Mack Smith's uh, autobiography that uh, part of the part of the way the Mr. Howard that was involved with helping them while well, helping is kind of an interesting term, maybe a loaded term, but, uh, in assisting them to get over to Palmyra was basically not letting Joseph Smith Jr. ride in the cart for uh, part of the way. And again, according to Lucy Mack Smith, he was trying to get, uh, the, the younger girls, like to, I think teenage girls, uh, which is pretty, pretty gross. Um, from another family that they were traveling with to sit up front with him uh, and, and made Joseph, who's still, uh, according to Lucy, was still recovering from his, uh, his leg injury. Um, and I think even on crutches, uh, you know, he's still having a hard time. So if that's to be uh, relied upon, it, it's a, it's a sad story for him, at least. I mean, having to go through that process, especially for the length of the journey. I mean, as we're talking about a long time here. So, um, Saints does a good job of of using the Lucy Mack Smith narrative to uh, create a very, I, I would say, very theatrical um, 
story of, of how, how events unfolded. And again, it's really the only record that we have. So, um, it, it, as of right now, it's, it's, it's what we, it's what we have. It's what we're going to use. Um, but we have to remember that when we're using one source, we have to be careful about that, especially when the one source is, is telling it in the eyes of, of, uh, in this case, her own, um, perspective of how, of how things unfolded. Uh, I, once again, have no doubt that, uh, this guy was, uh, probably a pretty scummy guy and at the very least, not very helpful. And so, uh, it seems like she got rid of him about halfway through and continued the the journey on her own. So, yeah, at a minimum, Mr. Howard was a dick. It seems like <laughs> it. that's to sum it up. We're talking about a pretty big dick here. Um, anyway, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> So, so we arrive in Palmyra, and Palmyra is where the story really starts to get fleshed out. Brody notes that Palmyra was a very rapidly growing town, had all the necessities of life, it had access to, you know, what they would consider luxuries, such as schools and libraries, <laughs> something that we would maybe we take for granted these days, but uh, it was it was actually pretty good size for, uh, you know, pretty good size libraries. If you wanted to, you know, more stuff, you could always go to Canadagua, which was only 12 miles away. Um, again, not not terribly far, really. Um, and uh, and then you had even more available at that point. Uh, so Palmyra was really booming. Uh, you know, I made a joke, I think, last time about Palmyra being a city of industry. It, it truly was. Um, in, in 1817, they started to uh, – the, the bill, actually, to build the Erie Canal had just passed. So this was a this was a landmark bill, and a and a landmark public project at this time, and uh, it led to this gigantic increase in uh, in land value. So as with anything, I mean, we see this um, all the time. Actually, a really good example is is uh, when the church decides to build the temple somewhere. Uh, when they when they find the the place where the temple's going to go, immediately the land value just shoots up like crazy because of the value of the temple, right? So the Erie Canal, I mean, has a, a totally different economic value, but probably in retrospect much higher economic value um, due to the amount of business that it brings into the area, and so you see land just going in the crazy numbers here. And uh, at the, at the time that uh, the Smith family decided to start moving that way or decided to move that way the land value shot up as much as four uh, times what the value was just a few years prior. So if the land actually, that's just raw land, by the way, if it had been cleared and it had a cabin on it, it was worth as much as 23 X, 23 times the price uh, of just a few years prior. That's uh that's a pretty wild land speculation. <laughs> that's insane. That's like Bitcoin. It is. Uh, and, and then, Jeez. yeah, well, at least how Bitcoin was. Anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> land speculation happened. It's just the wrong time for Senior. As he comes in, he's trying to, you know, obviously he's in a he's in between a rock and a hard place here. He's got to move. And this is a pretty good place. It's booming. And, and so he decides to go ahead and buy it at uh, at its, at the top of the value uh, that, that it hit. So, I mean, we can liken this unto somebody that in 2007 – uh, goes and buys a house uh, in a really hot real estate market like Florida, for example, and 
pretty much right after that. Uh, a year later. A year later, yeah, things went pretty bad. And I don't think it was quite that uh, that distinct, but things shot up way high, and then they they came way back down to a pretty even level at some point. Probably not good investment advice to buy high and sell low. Just FYI. Yeah, it's it's the opposite of what you want to do. But hey, listen, this uh, I don't think he was doing it for the investment. <laughs> I'm just going to yeah. say that right now. I was doing it because he had to. And, and honestly, you know, it's in, in hindsight's 2020. You're not going to have somebody that knows exactly what's going to happen. Uh, I, I bet you anything that he probably just thought things were going to keep going up. Just again, just like somebody who was buying a house in Florida in the Florida real estate market in 2007, they would have thought things were just going to keep going up forever. Uh, but we know, you know, what goes up must come down. So, um, so there, there was just this pattern of settlers moving further and further west. And Ohio in particular was a common next step for migrants, which is so interesting perspective to put in place early is that we have this idea of, I don't want to use the term zeitgeist because it makes me sound like an idiot, but uh, in, in, the, <laughs> in, in the milieu, that's probably worse. But anyway, in the milieu of the area, uh, we, we have we have this idea of, okay, I'm going to – we're going to move west, but our first step is going to be Palmyra, and then after that, it's going to be Ohio, and then whatever. You know what I mean? So there there was already this idea in place. So the idea of moving from uh, Palmyra to Kirtland, though there was some different stops along the way, is is – pretty much preordained at this point um, because we have it ex- extant in, in the uh, in the area at the time that Smith Sr. moves over there and, and starts to move his family over there. Interesting little side note, I thought. Well, and oftentimes those those moves are based on circumstance rather than, than oh, well, strategically this makes sense. Right. You know, um, mm-hmm. we, uh, we visited um, Nova Scotia last year. Oh, cool. And uh, my wife apparently has ancestry that goes all the way up to Nova Scotia. And, oh, cool. Uh, and in talking to them, it was actually really interesting because my wife is from Massachusetts. <laughs> they actually, her grandparents moved down to Massachusetts, uh, started their family, and then moved back to Nova Scotia. And you ever heard of the uh, the uh, the term or the uh, – uh, you ever heard of uh, Acadians? I don't think I have, no. Okay, Acadians are like a French people that were in Nova Scotia. Oh, like Cajuns down in Louisiana. Exactly, and that's exactly where I'm going. The Acadians moved from from Nova Scotia. They were actually exiled from Nova Scotia and then moved down to Louisiana, and that's where you get the term Cajun from, is from Acadians. Yeah. And so when the exile was lifted, it was basically the English. Nobody's a big fan of the English during that time. But uh, but they were exiled and then they, they came back once the exile was lifted. And so that's why you have this population uh, of French-speaking Cajuns down in Louisiana. So they, they came from Nova Scotia. Oh, I never knew that. That's really interesting. But the reason why they moved away from Nova Scotia after that, like her grandparents, was because that's down in Massachusetts was where work was. And so it was based on circumstance right. more than anything. Right. You went where the work was. That's exactly. been that's been the case for I mean millennia. It's weird now because it's not really so much the case anymore. It is for some people. I again, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, the COVID crisis before and um our hearts really go out to people who have jobs that they have to they have to be in person for. It's difficult. Um it's difficult to stay at home. 
And, but, but we, we see a lot now, uh, of people who are able to work from home way more than ever before. Um, and, and it's such a shift in our history. You know, we talk about history on this podcast. I don't know if you're aware. Um, but we, um, we, we look back in history and we see all these times where, uh, major migrations happen because, Okay, so the Erie Canal is a fantastic example of that. They went where the work was, just like Moses was saying, with uh, with his uh, wife's family. And so this has been just common uh, forever, and we're seeing a shift in that now. It's really interesting to see how this is going to play out going forward and how flexible work becomes for people to be almost anywhere and, and still – do a particular job. So, okay. So they, so they get down there and, um, you know, to buy this land at a really high price. Um, saints is mentioning the fact that they, they, um, managed to get a, a mortgage on a hundred acre wood. Not, I always say that. And I think of Winnie the Pooh, but anyway, um, <laughs> right. You can't say hundred acre wood. And I don't know. I, I always think and not think Christopher Robin. Yeah, exactly. Okay. A little side note. Cause, um, I thought it was kind of odd. They actually had a hundred acre spot that they were in before. And I was like, okay. So they just, they seem to like the number 100. It's just like a round number. Um, and then I, I looked into it a little bit. It's actually very common. It's like the, it, that's like the uh, main, that's like the main acreage that people would buy in a new plot of land, especially when they were moving into um, frontier areas. So that's basically how they, that's how they divided things up. You would have your hundred acres. Oh, that's interesting. You would get your hundred acres, right? And, and again, we come back to this idea of a freehold. Now I, I only looked into the Vermont law, so I didn't, I didn't see what New York was doing at the time. I'd have to imagine it's somewhat similar, but this idea of a freehold um, comes with the, the hundred acre, lot that you have that you are, you are required to improve because you get it at a, uh, a favorable, um, rate essentially. Um, and, and because they're, again, they're trying to encourage people to move West. So anyway, um, just an interesting little side note. Cause I, I never knew that about the hundred acre thing. I thought that was just kind of odd that, that, that you would find a lot of people, not just the Smith family, but a lot of people would end up with a hundred acre lot randomly, but it's not random. It's uh, there's reason for it. Yeah, so so we have uh, we have them so we have them on their hundred acre um, plot, and they start to they kind of start to kick it into gear here. It's it's almost like there was a couple years early on in, in um, senior and and Lucy's marriage where they where they had really good uh, years for crops. Senior did a good job and brought in some money, and things were going well. And then. Um, it kind of went downhill from there. They had a lot of years of, of, of rough uh, times that hit them. And to be fair, after all the stuff that happened with Junior's leg, uh, it, there was a lot of medical bills uh, that, that kind of uh, built up, uh, according, to, um, according to Lucy. And it made it really difficult for them after that, uh, not to mention, you know, you have your 1816 event that, uh, that ruined everything too. And two years of crop failures. I mean, all this stuff just adds up. So it's nice to see that they move into Palmyra and they're starting to kind of, uh, make a little bit of a difference in, in their situation. You know, with that comes this complacency that we see this, this pattern in the Smith family where when things are kind of going okay, that's when they start to branch out and do some of the other things that, uh, that made them a little less 
welcomed by some of their neighbors. This is where they get into the magic practice and the occult practice that uh, that did not necessarily endear some of their neighbors to them. Um, and we see that when when they move to Palmyra, that that starts to have an uptick again um, with the with the treasure seeking, with the treasure digging. So you know, skipped here. This is something from uh, Vogel, by the way. It, he says uh, that, it, or I'm paraphrasing at least, but skipped here is the fact that the Smith family arrived uh, in Palmyra uh, at Lucy's command. They had organized themselves, and Lucy opened a storefront um, in their in their rented home, uh, which was normal, by the way. They would, you know, you'd buy a piece of land, but you would rent a home, and so you could improve the land and build a log cabin and stuff like that. Um, so in their rented home, they actually had. Um, a little storefront that Lucy put up and said, uh, it said cakes and beer. So we know that. And obviously, like I said before, it's a uh, root beer, not, uh, the, the a drink of uh, barley. Um, but, not uh, the strong drink. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no strong. Okay. Hold on. We'll get into the word of wisdom. Oh eventually. yeah. Yeah. We don't, <laughs> that's not even a strong drink. Even. Yep. Strong, strong drink is, uh, is hard liquor. That's what strong drink meant. Uh, a drink of barley was, was beer was alcoholic beer, right? Not root beer. Um, that's, that, oh, that's just a tangent. That just <laughs> Our favorite. drives Tangents. me nuts. That, <laughs> yeah. Oh, but I mean, that's what the word of wisdom is talking about when it's talking about drinks of barley. Yep. It's true. It's allowed in the word of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yep. 100%. <laughs> uh, and once again, we'll get to that. It probably it'll be a while, but yeah, <laughs> but we'll get there. Just a little teaser, you know. Um, oh, jeez, it's true though. So, so, so we have to understand. I mean, this is what's so important about language, and the type of language that was used at the time. And it's hard sometimes to understand um, how things were used. You have to you have to really understand the context first of all. You have to understand also other uses. It's almost like case law. Like you know, are you familiar with the, the concept of of case law where. Uh, an attorney is going to try to prove something based on the other cases that have happened that are similar, right? That's the so, precedence, yeah. Yeah, that's the precedent, exactly. So if we look in, in history and we use other context in, say, a book that was written at the same time or whatever, right? We, we have all these different sources. It's tedious, but we can start to get an idea of what it actually meant because it's certainly not what it means now. I mean, almost, I mean, like so much of what they said uh, and, and wrote it is just a hundred percent, hundred eighty difference from uh, from what we what we know today, and we covered that on one of our earlier episodes. But uh, a, a huge resource, which is is a great reference to use when when trying to look up. This is a, this is going to be useful for words specifically. Um, just a specific word that is used that has a different meaning, perhaps, is uh, Webster's Dictionary from eighteen twenty eight. Um, and the website is very simple. It's Webster's Dictionary eighteen twenty eight dot com. Uh, super helpful resource. You can use it to look up words like promiscuous, like we did in the other episode, uh, to understand the way that that word has changed over the years. Cause so many have, um, so many of these words have. So use that resource. If you come across a word, especially, especially one, that, <laughs> this is going to be hard, but like, especially one that you think, you know, and just, you know, test yourself a little bit and say, I think I know what it means, but let me go back and look at the dictionary and see if it means something else. Because it's really interesting. What, you, what you're going to find is pretty interesting. So Lucy sets up the cakes and beer shop. It was uh, it was a local sweet shop, essentially. I mean, that was the main thing that they did. Um, they seemed to get quite a bit of uh, business, especially from the local youth. And uh, Senior was kind of reluctant, and uh, he wanted to buy another farm. 
But Lucy was able to kind of sway him as uh, this time, as uh, according to many records as she had it before. So you, you, you continue to see this power dynamic in the Smith family, this, this family dynamic, at least um, of Lucy being the main person, uh, a decision maker in the family. Um, it, it continues on forever, really. Um, which, so I think that's kind of uh, just an interesting little thing. You know, they get it. I think she kind of, I could see Lucy being a little frazzled after all of the events that have happened, after being forced to move from Sharon, Vermont, something she probably would have been kind to her husband about, but the, the process of moving was obviously exasperating to her. She gets into Palmyra. Senior says, I want to do this. She says, no, we are going to do things my way. So <laughs> you just sit down and I'm not going to say shut up, but sit down and, and just follow my lead and we'll, we'll make this work. And what do hey, you know? We've done things uh, your way for long enough. Yeah, exactly. So, like, uh, hey, let's you try had your, a different method. You had your chance, Mister. This is my yeah. no. Um, <laughs> so, and, and she's pretty successful. Like the 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 shop that she opens is pretty good. So I I have to say that um, following her example seemed to work. But uh, anyway, once they're pretty much settled, um, seniors able to actually mortgage the hundred acre forest and uh, begins to clear the land. They did do a lot of the land clearing. They started doing um, odd jobs, digging wells. They started doing some um, other things. So we see we see in Saints, uh, and I'll just quote from Saints. It's page eight. Um, it's uh, it's uh, it says Joseph Senior and the older sons dug wells. They split uh, fence rails and harvested hay for cash. Lucy and the daughters made and sold pies, root beer, and decorative cloths to provide the uh, provide food for the family. Um, Basically, what they're saying is, you know, these these guys were very industrious, and it sounds like they actually entered a period where they were, where everybody kind of took place. And maybe the kids were old enough now to really have an impact on the family, and that was a big deal um, back then. And that's actually, honestly, that's one of the reasons a lot of families had lots of kids is because they wanted to be able to kind of contribute to the industry of the family. Um, more kids often did that, as 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 you could have kids at least, because I mean, obviously the the mortality rate of infants in that time was pretty poor as, as probably most aptly demonstrated by Joseph Smith Jr. himself. But, um, you know, you, you, you have this instance where things seem to be going pretty well. Um, so I think that's kind of, I think that's kind of an interesting thing. It's like I said before, they were able to, well, Brody says that, you know, with the help of, uh, various, uh, industry in the, in the Smith household, they were able to make their first in year installment, uh, and build a cabin. Um, this is, this is pretty remarkable. Again, we're, we're talking about years and years of, of, of problems, not being able to pay mortgages of not be, of being, um, essentially kicked out of a town. Um, and so now they have a, a year where, they, Hey, we made our, our first mortgage payment, um, be, meaning a, a whole year. That was how the mortgages worked at that point. Um, if, if they were installments, they were usually a year at a time. Um, and so the first payment was due a year from, uh, the, the, uh, origination of the of the mortgage, but uh, Jeez, can you imagine like yeah. <laughs> having to save up that much money? Well, well, well okay. Entire mortgage. That's that's the first thought, right? And then the second thought comes with that and says, "Oh wait, they're they're farming, and so the, their their farming proceeds come pretty much a year later, right?" 
So that's how that whole thing worked in the first place is that the, oh, that the, the yeah, banks or, or other lenders, because we're talking about the banks were so uncommon at the time. You, you really, you had a lot of people in the community that were just wealthy uh, citizens that would, that would, you know, um, create a, a contract, a note with somebody um, and, and create the terms of that contract. But this was pretty common to have this, you know, yearly installment payments based on the, uh, based on the season of, of the, uh, of the cash crop. Mainly you had the, you had the crops that you would feed your family from, and then you had the cash crops that you would sell, um, for income. So yeah, I, just an interesting, um, interesting concept based on the way that we think we see things today. Um, some mortgages actually didn't have any installments at all. They were, they were due at the end of the term and they were due in, in full with interest. Um, and, and, you know, interest was different. It was simple interest. It was not compounding. Uh, this is probably going to put a lot of people to sleep anyway. Um, <laughs> basically, basically, yeah, it was, I mean, it was cheaper essentially, right? Cause you don't have, uh, interest being charged on a daily balance that increases every single day, 365 days a year. You just have an interest that's charged over a one year period. Um, but, but you have this, okay. Like, a um, a lot of, in a lot of cases, a five or 10 year term, um, then you would have the full amount due at the end of that term. So you have to be on top of your game at that point. And this is where your, your point comes in really clear, Moses. If you're doing the yearly installments, it probably is easy to keep up with because you're, you're going along with the cycle of your, um, with your, the sale of your crops or you're saving it from the sale of your crops specifically for that. But if you have it due at the end of five or 10 years, you got to be a little bit better about how you're keeping your money. Well, that basically is how it works nowadays, except now you have a lot more government subsidies for, for, for farming. So it's a little bit different, but, um, but I, I mean, if you look at, uh, you look at the industries with the most debt, it's probably farming because they, they have to take out loans and then they pay back the entire loan at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. So anyway, so they, yeah, they, they make this stuff happen. And, uh, this is where we, I'm going to go back to my concept earlier of the, uh, Joseph Smith, the prophet of the restoration movie. This is where we see the Smiths, you know, tapping maple trees, uh, and, and doing a bunch of different things here and there and, and digging a well, although that has other connotations, uh, in with it. But anyway, as just a real quick thing about the, the tapping the maple, um, that's actually, I guess that's not a really big part of the movie, but it, you do see them doing it. And it's kind of like, Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, they actually won an award for being one of the top producers of maple syrup in the County. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's a $50 award, <laughs> which at the time was probably a pretty sizable award. Um, yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah. Not too bad. So good on them. I just give them a round of applause for being upstanding uh, citizens of the community, at least at that point. And so what, what makes this whole thing more, uh, more impressive is the fact that they bought the land at four times the price. Yeah. Well, I mean, just if you were going by the, 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 the standard averages yeah. during that time. Yeah. But they bought the land at four times the price and now they're making mortgage payments based on that four times the price and they're sure. still being profitable, which is pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive. And, and to be fair, um, they did a pretty good job of clearing the land. I mean, a lot of times the pro the process would be, you would move to a new, um, you would buy, you would buy a farm. Okay. And then you do one of two things. If you had enough in your family of, of, of people, well, I mean, men, we're going <laughs> to, 
this is maybe sexist today, but at the time it was just the way it was the reality of, of what they did. If you had enough men in your family that were uh, strong and, and of working age, they would help you develop the land and develop the farm and, and plant the crops and harvest, blah, blah, blah. Um, if you didn't, which was the case for the Smiths for a, a while until, until the older boys, well, even, I mean, they had Alvin and Hiram, but they, you know, that was it basically. Um, until, until, um, Joseph came along, but, uh, you would hire out help. And in some cases, people would just buy a farm. They would mortgage a farm and they would rent a house and then they would outsource all of their work um, to laborers They would go and do the clearing and they would plant and they would do all the stuff. And then at the same time, they would go and do these other jobs. So this is essentially what um, the Smiths are doing. Uh, they did actually hire out some help and they, they helped them to get everything ready to go while they did other things to bring in income as well. So not a bad, uh, not a bad way of doing things really. Um, especially if you have a brand new hundred acre land, uh, a hundred acre plot of land that you need to clear and you need to get ready for, for planting. So, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, they, they did a really good job with this. Okay, thanks again for listening to No Man Knows My Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, we, we split this one into two episodes um, so that we could, you know, make it a little bit more bite-sized for you guys. So this is the first half of this episode. Episode five will be up in two weeks, which is the 3rd of September. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, in the meantime, remember that word of mouth is always the best way that we can get our podcasts out there. So please tell who you know, tell everyone you know that uh, you love this podcast because we know that you love it. And also, go to your favorite podcast app, whatever you're listening to this in right now, and give us a give us a rating, give us a review. We want to hear what you have to say. Uh, if you're listening to this on, on Spotify, please follow us. Also, we are still doing the listener Q&A uh, as soon as we get a question that we can address. Uh, so send us your questions, Mormon history questions, no man knows my podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also send it to our Twitter account at no man knows pod. Uh, DM us on Reddit. Our username is you slash no man knows my podcast. Finally, you can find us at our website, no man knows.com or through your particular flavor of social media. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash no man knows or our t- on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at no man knows pod. Once again, thank you for listening to no man knows my podcast, the Mormon history podcast. Stay tuned for more exciting discussion.